Thomas Paine, you no doubt know the name, in his uh, work entitled The Age of Reason, states in the first part, section one, his belief. He says, I believe in God and no more. And I hope for happiness beyond this life. He went on to state what he did not believe. He says in that work, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, which we meant Islam, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. We must commend Paine for his clarity. One thing he was as a writer was clear, passionate and clear. He was a journalist by profession and one of the founding fathers. And of course, by this description, he clearly was a deist. Now, what can we make of Mr. Paine's remarks? For one, he did not believe in organized religion. No belief in organized religion. In that, he shares the same attitude with many of our contemporaries, though he would not describe himself as they would, a spiritual person, but not religious. He certainly, of course, did not believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So uh, this sermon and my last two sermons would be entirely wasted upon him, I would say. But in this sermon, I am here to set before you what is meant for us to believe in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for us to believe in the oneness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we turn uh, to our text. It's in Ephesians. And um, in this sermon, the third one in this series, though it is a, a one in a longer series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is a challenging idea, the oneness of the church. It's a very challenging idea. I, I, I really was puzzled uh, late yesterday evening exactly how to approach this. And so um, I thought, what, what, what is so troubling about this? Well, why do I have such a difficulty? And I thought of three things. One is American individualism is not conducive to submitting to any organized corporate body with authority. I'm told by a lot of my friends that the civic organizations, for instance, in this area really are dying out. The young people don't join. And uh, lots of community good can be done through those civic organizations. It's one way to exercise salt and light as citizens. The second reason is it's obvious that to confess belief in the one church flies in the face of the fact that there are so many churches. Absolutely so many churches. Take my own home state of West Virginia. It has all the denominations. But among the Baptists, there are 26 different kinds. That's just in one church or state. Uh, the third reason I thought about this is 
to clearly uh, to understate uh, this in, in a way uh, that the size of the PCA, uh, our own ministry, I just came back from General Assembly and got a very good look at our church in this General Assembly. For us to claim to be the only one true church of Christ on earth would in some ways be ludicrous. We're just simply not that big, though it's a growing and good-sized body. Now then, let us look at the text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. And this is what I want you to see from this text. The church finds its unity, its oneness, if you will, through its faith in its head, even our Lord Jesus Christ. What I say in the following words will be circumscribed by that. The body finds its oneness in its head through trust in him. And uh, all of the scriptures today, in one way or another, are chosen to, to point out the oneness of the church. And you had read to you, I read it, John 17. In John 17, what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays for the unity of his disciples. I want you to hear again what was read to you. Jesus in verse 6 says, Those whom you have given to me out of the world. That's who he's praying for. And then he goes on those who have obeyed the word of God are the ones that you have given to me. And he continues in that, those who are protected by the power of the name. And here he uses the name Holy Father. Though God is described as holy in many passages, for instance, in Hebrews and Revelation, this is the only place in the New Testament that you will find God addressed this way as Holy Father in verse 11. Now, what are we uh, here stating? It is that the highly, high priestly prayer of Jesus is a prayer for the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you go through that prayer, you will discover two things about Jesus' prayer for the un unity of the church. In the first part, starting at around verse 6, you will see that that unity is in fact a gift from God. You have given them to me. Unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in one sense is not a human achievement. It is a gift from the divine. It is a gift of his spirit. But also in that prayer, particularly in the latter part of it, you will see that it is something that we are strive to do and be. It is an achievement in one sense. We are to keep the unity of the church through truth and love. How then is the oneness of the church manifest in the world today? How do you see its oneness? We can understand when we confess its Catholicity and its holiness and its apostolic uh, characteristics, but its oneness? What is that? Let me suggest to you that the oneness of the church, in fact, is found in apostolicity, in Catholicity, and in its holiness. Look at verse 14 uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, 
2. The apostle says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. The one body, the unity of the church, is God's creation. Nevertheless, he gives this to be realized as we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And as we confess him as the only redeemer of God's elect. And as we confess that we share together in the body of Christ that one spirit he was poured out upon Pentecost. Now, this body or oneness is marked by Catholicity. Over and over, I hear some people will say to me, once in a while, even in this church, that we should make that more clear. We, we should, should distinguish ourselves from the Roman Catholic Church. The problem, if we go down that road, is we'll have to, to distinguish ourselves from the Greek Catholics, from the Coptic Christians who call themselves Catholic, uh, from a host of other national churches that most of us do not know by name, who also claim apostolicity and Catholicity. We should not give up on that word because it really is talking about the whole family of God, not just all of those contemporaneous with us. When, when we use the word Catholicity, we're talking about those who died in the faith and gone on before and those who will live in the future until Jesus comes. We're all one body. The church is made up of the living and the dead. It is the true communion of the saints. And that is about the only way to read Hebrews chapter 11. They're a cloud of witness for us. Now, what does it mean to be Catholic? Then it means the church is not ethnic. It means that the church cannot be confined to an ethnic group. Largely in the Old Testament, the congregation of the Lord uh, is represented by an ethnic group. The Jewish people or the Israel, uh, Israelites. It's largely ethnic. But as our confession says in the New Testament, the church is no longer ethnic, but Catholic. God has now, in Jesus Christ, made both Jew and Gentile one in himself through faith and trust. This is the basis for the unity that we have. In um, World War II, or leading up before World War II, you know that the rise of Nazism in Germany... Uh, led to World War II. But what is not known is that the Nazis tried to co-opt the German church, Protestant and Catholic, uh, to make it an ethnic church again. To find its purity, if you will, in the German people, in the German race. What is interesting is that both Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer rejected any attempts by the Nazis to turn the church back into an ethnic church. There's quite a history of those two in their testimony against what the Nazis were trying to do. Finally, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, was, uh, was uh, murdered, if you will, by the Nazis just before the end of World War II. The church is always marked in its oneness by its Catholicity. And where that is not found, the church is not one.
The church's unity also is found in its apostolicity. Now, I have in some ways touched upon this before, but let me remind you what this means. If we are to have one church, it must be the one church upon which the apostles, as successors of Jesus, uh, founded their teaching. They received from Christ the gospel and they, they ex- exegeted it, explained it, and passed it on to us. The church of unity, then, is found upon the foundation of these apostles. In the New Testament, apostolicity has to do with confessing and teaching the faith and practice as set forth in the life of the apostles. I want to read verses 19 and 20. And if you look at the text, I want you to see how this works. Consequently, says Paul, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. What is he saying? He's saying that we are a fellowship, a family of God established upon the foundation of Christ and his apostles. When we confess that we believe in an apostolic church, we are also confessing we believe in the oneness of the church. There is, if you will, a oneness. Listen to Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Notice how Paul works this out. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you may be called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here we see what means to be an apostolic church. It is the one faith that they receive from Jesus, faith in him as Lord, as Redeemer. The faith that they received and the spirit that they received on the day of Pentecost. We believe and receive Jesus Christ. And when we do believe and receive Jesus Christ, we become one with those of all ages. We believe what Christ and his apostles taught. Everyone, I don't care what segment of Christianity confesses, that this is part of the apostolic faith. To believe in what the apostles taught and proclaimed and confessed. The unity of the church, then, is confessed in having the mind of Christ and his apostles. We share that together. We are one communion. There's not a chapter in the Bible quite like chapter 11 of Hebrews. And I'd like for you just, if you, if you will do this, I don't normally recommend that you try to follow me. You get lost uh, in the scriptures. But I want you to just turn to Hebrews. And turn to that wonderful and great chapter. It is quite edifying in what it has to say and the way that the, the faith of these, our forebearers, are set forth in verses. Particularly, I want to focus on verses 39 and 40. 39 and 40. After he gives an account of all of these, uh, if you will, Paragon examples of the faith, he comes to chapter 
11 at the end in verses 39 and 40 and summarize it, summarizes that history this way. These, he says, were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God has planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Here is an expression of the oneness of the faith. We share the same faith as our Old Testament brothers and sisters. They look to Christ to be saved. We look to Christ to be saved. They look forward. We look backward. But it is the same faith that binds us together. This gives unity to the church. We are brought together in this faith through the preaching and proclamation of the word and set forth an observance of the sacraments. Through the heard word and through the visible word, we are brought together in faith. This is the fellowship of God. How much the Apostle Paul in the New Testament emphasizes koinonia, fellowship. It's not just an option tacked on to doctrine and worship. Fellowship is an essential part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We fellowship together in the same faith. You know, I, I, some years ago, some of you know, my, sis, my sister, my daughter, I sometimes think she's my sister. My older daughter won a, won a, uh, a drawing at Christmas at her uh, place of work and a ticket for two people to fly anywhere around the world and back. So she took me along. Uh, we went to Thailand and uh, we went to go scuba diving. She pretty good at it. I had never tried it. So we went to an island in the Gulf of Thailand, but we met Christians. I never felt I was a foreigner as soon as I met Christians. It made no difference what they looked like. It made no difference they were this tall <laughs> and that slender. I, I envy them. Made no difference made no difference hardly that they could speak the language. We went into this little place, for instance, before we got there in Bangkok, and it was a Christian hostel, if you will. I felt right at home. We shared the same faith. There was an exercise of unity, of the oneness that we share in Jesus Christ. This is a unity that cannot be shaken. It is a unity we share with the saints of all times. What a wonderful thing it is to have fellowship and to share our faith together. You know what we're doing today following the, the, the Sunday school hour? Fellowship together. I notice how many of you desire it so much. It's hard to get you to come sometimes to a Sunday school class because you are enjoying that part of the life of the church and I have no criticism. None whatsoever. It's part of the exercise of the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We share the same mind, the same truth, the same doctrine. We have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if the oneness of the church means anything, it at least means that. Let's continue. The oneness of the church also has to do with practice. The unity and the oneness of the church 
is manifest and achieved, if you will, uh, in its practice. Holiness is a big theme in the scriptures, a lot more than most people, uh, it's emphasized a lot more than most people realize. When we talk about the one Catholic and apostolic church, we must never forget it's also called a holy church. Now, sure enough, its holiness is found in the fact that we are united with our head, who was the sinless Lamb of God, sanctified to become our Savior, our Redeemer. But we also are to practice that. An apostolic practice is binding upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul even commands his followers, Timothy and others, to do what he did. And I want you to look in chapter 2 at verse 22 then of this passage of Scripture. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And then he goes on in chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He continues, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Hear me carefully. I want to state this without causing confusion. There is no discussion in the New Testament canon of a church that is to be organizationally big church. That developed in the third to the fifth centuries, both in the east and in the west. There were mentions of it in the second century, but it really developed between the third and the fifth centuries. The concept of big church come to its, came to its full bloom in the fifth century. But in the New Testament, the emphasis is not upon that. The emphasis is not upon succession as to a line of bishops, per se. But the emphasis is upon the practice of the apostles and the faith of the apostles. We are to be a big family, if you will, in faith and love. That is where the true unity of the church resides and that is something that cannot be taken from us, for it is God's gift and it is our achievement to strive for the peace and purity of the church. To practice what our Lord and his apostles commanded. In this, the church chiefly, not exclusively, but chiefly manifests its unity. Maybe most of you have not heard of Rudolf Pannenberg. I suppose he's in his mid-80s. He's a German. He may just be the greatest theological thinker in the world today. He came out with a startling rebuke several years ago. It actually shocked me. 
But he must have been thinking along this line of the practice of the apostles in the church and the unity of the church and what it means. He came out with a very sharp rebuke of a denomination in this country who ordained a practicing homosexual bishop. He did not condemn the man. I'm sure he is satisfied to leave that up to God. He did not even make much of the sin, though I'm sure he understands that it does not conform to apostolic practice. What he did condemn was an action of the church that sanctioned a practice contrary to the oneness of the church. And what he said, and everyone heard it loud and clear because of who said it, he said, this is an act of schism that the whole church in the whole world ought to condemn. It breaks the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shocking, not to me and to a church like this, but in the circles in which he inhabits, it was stunning. It was stunning. There are two sins in the New Testament that you can commit that attacks the unity of the church. And I'm closing. Number one, the first sin is called heresy. It's a sin against what the apostles taught. What they had received from Christ and taught themselves as the foundation and passed on to faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. What the church has always taught, preached, and confessed. To seriously depart from the faith and its essentials that attacks that bond between Christ and his church and what he did for us is heresy and it as an attack upon the oneness of the church. Secondly, there is the sin of schism. Yeah, it is pronounced like scissors, schism, not schism. Even though every newscaster on television says schism. It is schism. It is a failure to maintain the fellowship of the saints that the apostles established. It is a sin, if you will, against charity, the charity of the church that it is to maintain the apostolic practice in love, to love one another, to support one another, not to sin against that fellowship. The unity of the church is maintained by you when you hold to the doctrines of the apostle and when you hold to the practice of the apostles. This in this consists the holiness of the church. To break the bond of truth or love is an attack upon the oneness of the church. Now, Thomas Paine can be dismissed at this point. He has no interest in this discussion. Thomas Paine would just walk away. Listen. You're talking about authority and oneness. You're talking about something a long time ago. We live in the enlightenment. I live by my own lights. But you don't. You have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. 
you have confessed to believe in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And you must be diligent to maintain the unity of the church in the bond of peace. Did you hear the final vow that I gave from the book of church order to Richard? Do you promise to study the purity and peace of the church? My friend, as Christians, we all have that obligation. And when the temptation comes to attack the unity of the church because it didn't go your way, you must with all in your power resist and say, I believe in the oneness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in one faith, one Lord, one baptism, for there is only one God. And he has his congregation, which is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Praise be to God. Amen.